Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, the exhibit Beaches, Creatures, and Cowboys, Florida Movie Posters, opens at the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. Along with the posters, you're going to see content related to the films in there, as well as items related to entertainment. So we're going to have a stereoscope that people can actually interact with and experience for themselves the first 3D technology. We'll discuss the search for the Maroon Settlement of Angola. Even though we may not have a, a clearly documented history, it doesn't mean that these communities didn't exist. And we'll talk about the Seminole and Miccosukee Constitutions. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Hundreds of filmmakers have followed their dreams to Florida. Dozens of Florida films are represented in the exhibit Beaches, Creatures, and Cowboys, Florida Movie Posters, opening Friday, September 14th with a wine and cheese reception at 6 p.m. at the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. Follow That Dream, shot entirely in Florida, is arguably Elvis Presley's best film. Yuli's Gold, starring Peter Fonda, looks at the struggles of a third-generation beekeeper and his family. The film Rosewood tells the true story of the destruction of a Florida town in 1923. These films and many others are represented with posters in this exhibit. Madeline Khaleesi is director of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science. So this exhibit, Beaches, Creatures, and Cowboys, Florida movie posters from the Museum of Florida History, shows us movie posters starting from the 1920s, when Florida was actually a very popular destination for Florida filmmakers. Eventually, the lack of government support and money and studio facilities made filmmakers kind of move over to California, but a lot of films were still created here in Florida. In addition to the movie posters provided by the Museum of Florida History in Tallahassee, the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science will augment the display with items from their own collection. Along with the posters, you're going to see content related to the films as well as items related to entertainment. So we're going to have a stereoscope that people can actually interact with and experience for themselves the first 3D technology, earlier cameras as well. And uh, we're also going to have some fun decorative items like a marquee depicting the title of the exhibit. We're going to have a TV in the exhibit that is having a running film uh, of scenes from from the films themselves. So um, you'll get to see bits and pieces pieces of films like The Yearling as you're exploring the exhibit. The Yearling is Florida writer Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings' most popular novel. It tells the story of a young boy and his pet deer and the sacrifice he must make for the good of his family. The book won the Pulitzer Prize in 1939, and soon after, the first effort was made to turn the book into a film. 
Florence Turcott is literary manuscripts archivist at the University of Florida in Gainesville. There was a version of the yearling that was filmed almost immediately after the Pulitzer Prize. Um, it started filming in 1940. Immediately after it was published and it was successful, Marjorie sold the rights to um, MGM for to make the movie. So they started making the movie and Spencer Tracy was going to be um, starring as Penny Baxter, the, the protagonist of the, of the novel, or the father of the protagonist, if you will. Marjorie was, you know, riding the success and was looking forward to the, to the movie being made and actually consulted with it. However, uh, Spencer Tracy and the other actors were somewhat dismayed by the horrible heat of Florida and the humidity and the mosquitoes. Um, Spencer Tracy was purported to have thrown his hat down in disgust and um, gone on a alcoholic bender in Ocala and literally drunkenly hailing a cab and saying, drive me to Chicago, I'm out of here. With Spencer Tracy abandoning the project and the U.S. about to enter World War II, MGM decided to shelve the yearling film, at least temporarily. They picked up again after World War II with a new cast, Gregory Peck playing Penny Baxter and Jane Wyman playing uh, Ma Baxter, and the, a, new, a new boy actor named Claude Jarman Jr. from Tennessee who had, not, had no acting experience whatsoever. He played the boy, Jody Baxter, and his relationship with the deer, the tenderness that he, had, that he showed with the animals and with the, the rapport that he had, especially with um, his father in the movie, was a, it was, a, it was a success. The movie was fantastic. It came out after the war. There was a, a sort of a nostalgic return to the old ways and this was a perfect movie for that, to, to display that. We're back to the way things were, um, you know, America fooling herself that, that it's all fine now. And um, well, the women are back in the domestic sphere, etc. So it was an immensely successful film. The Yearling was MGM's most successful film that year and earned two Academy Awards. You know we depend on our crops to live, don't we? Yes, sir. We can't go on having them destroyed one after the other. No, sir. And you know there ain't a way in the world to keep that wild yearling from destroying them. Yes, sir. I'm sorry. I can't never tell you how sorry. But all's been done was possible. Take the yearling out in the woods and tie him and shoot him. Oh. <gasps> The planned community of Seaside, Florida, provides the perfect backdrop for the satirical film The Truman Show, where Jim Carrey is the only person who doesn't realize that his life is a reality TV show. What better place to shoot scenes for the drama Apollo 13 than the Kennedy Space Center, where much of the real-life action depicted in the film took place? The crystal-clear waters of Silver Springs and Wakala Springs served as the underwater habitat of the Gill Man in the classic horror film Creature from the Black Lagoon. Riku Browning wore the distinctive and cumbersome costume in all of the underwater scenes in all three Creature films.
In a scene that is both sensual and scary, the Gill Man, played by Browning, swims directly beneath scientist Kay Lawrence, played by Julie Adams. We had a director, nice man, but he couldn't swim. So he was in an inner tube on the surface, looking down at what we were doing. So uh, the cameraman, uh, Scotty Welburn, kind of took over directing underwater. And so he said, well, let's swim downriver with Ginger and uh, get the scene of following her. And so I swam with her and uh, vision was the poorest thing in the suit. The eye sat about an inch away from my eye and I didn't use a face mask or a goggle because if they filled with water, I couldn't get rid of the water. So I went with a naked eye. So it was a blurred vision looking through a keyhole. So the only way I could see her was when I swam upside down. So I had to swim upside down underneath her in order to follow her down the river. As part of the exhibit Beaches, Creatures, and Cowboys, Florida Movie Posters, the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science will present a series of nine Florida films on Saturday afternoons. Museum Director Madeline Khaleesi. We are. So for several Saturdays uh, from the exhibit opening on September 15th to its finish on December 15th, we're going to have one o'clock matinees. They're going to be included with general admission for our guests. And you're going to get to see films like Where the Boys Are, Creature from the Black Lagoon, a fun film in October called The Cape Canaveral Monsters, The Yearling and Cross Creek Moon Over Miami, also The Greatest Show on Earth, which tells the story of the Ringling Circus's experience in Sarasota. The exhibit Beaches, Creatures, and Cowboys, Florida Movie Posters, has an opening reception on Friday, September 14th at 6 p.m. at the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science and continues through December 15th. I've got to follow that dream wherever that dream may lead. i got to follow that dream to find the love I need. When your heart gets restless, time to move along. When your heart gets weary, time to sing a song. But when a dream is calling you, there's just one thing that you can do. Find me someone whose heart is free, someone to love for my dream with me. And when I find her, I may find out just what my dreams are all about. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Tickets are available now for the third annual Florida Frontiers Festival on Saturday, October 20th. More information is at myfloridahistory.org. The gospel funk band The Lee Boys and bluesman Bill Sauce Boss Wharton will headline. Antique cars, artists, and vendors are all part of the event. 
Find out more at myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Bendy Biasi, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, maroon is originally a Spanish term that refers to escaped slaves. There were settlements of escaped slaves in Florida, right? Yeah, that's right, Ben. As, as early as the late 17th, early 18th century, people who were living in the American colonies, the British colonies along the eastern seaboard, were encouraged to escape from bondage and, and the plantation lives in those colonies and flee to Spanish Florida. Uh, the Spanish governors were trying to bolster the population. They were trying to build up a population, and they figured they could encourage not only these slaves of English plantation owners to flee down into their colonies and join their Spanish militia and, and pledge allegiance to the Spanish crown, but it would also help to erode at the economic power that the British plantations held in the coastal colonies in Georgia, the Carolinas, all the way up to Virginia. So as early as the beginnings of the 18th century, through the 18th century, through the American Revolutionary War period, and into the British period, actually, in Florida and, and the Second Spanish period, there was a concerted effort, at least for slaves, to not flee north, but rather to flee south to freedom and to exercise and live a, an autonomous life in their own communities, what, what you refer to as the maroon communities. And when we think about that term, maroon, we generally think about someone who was cast off on an island from a, a pirate ship or something like that. But the term, the etymology of the term really goes back to, as you said, the Spanish word for runaways, referring specifically to the slaves who were fleeing plantations coming to Florida and creating these maroon settlements, these kind of self-governing autonomous settlements within Spanish Florida. Now, one of these settlements in particular was known as Angola. And Angola was a fairly common term for slave settlements or, or maroon settlements throughout much of the New World and the Caribbean. But the Angola settlement in Florida was actually located on the Gulf Coast in Manatee County, actually on the Manatee River, which at the time was referred to as the Oyster River. This is at the beginnings of the 19th century, so during the War of 1812, when the British had attempted to try and retake Florida, and uh, they had set up really a couple of, of what would become maroon colonies on the Apalachicola River and the Gulf Coast, uh, what became known as Prospect Bluff or the Negro Fort. But this other colony formed right around that same time period, 1814, 1815. And at its height, estimates put the population at about 700 individuals, 600, 700, maybe even more people who were living at the mouth of the, San, uh, the Manatee River, uh, which is on the southern end of, of Tampa Bay. And at that time, there were very few people living here, very few colonists who had attempted to settle in the southern regions of Florida at the beginning of the 19th century. But again, as was the case during the first Spanish period, during the second Spanish period, they were trying to promote immigration into the, the Spanish colony. And at the time, the, the Spanish were having a lot of uh, financial troubles. There, there were wars in Europe and a lot of other issues. So, you know, Florida was really a financial drain on the crown. So if they could get people to move there, to cultivate the land, to help protect against this newly formed American power, but also from British and French powers, it was important for them to move people into this area and try and attract uh, settlement. And the Angola 
community kind of represented that settlement. So toward the end of the second Spanish period, it really became kind of a large, a large-scale settlement in that region of a very kind of a remote area of Florida. Well, you have here a document from the Florida Historical Society archive that points to the naming of the Angola settlement. Yeah, that's right, Ben. What we're looking at is actually a document uh, dated 1832. This was a letter from the Secretary of the U.S. Treasury, and it's actually a report on private land claims in East Florida. Now, Florida became a U.S. territory in 1821. It was actually in 1821 that the Angola community essentially ceased to exist. So the uh, U.S. government was putting pressure on these maroon colonies. They were trying to really destroy and disrupt the the maroon colonies because they didn't want these people in Florida. They were trying to promote Pioneers, uh, Anglo pioneers, to move into move into the state. So during the the U.S. territorial period, they were sending you know military groups and and uh, kind of these mercenaries down into these areas to try and disrupt the the settlements. And that's what happened in 1821 in Angola. And as is the case with a lot of the maroon colonies in well Florida and, and throughout the United States, there are very few historical records uh, that exist. But what we're looking at today is it isn't much, but it's very very telling. Looking at this land claim document. So after the U.S. acquired the Floridas from the Spanish, there were a number of people who were living here. They were Spanish citizens who wanted to stay, or at least they claimed ownership of land. They they were claiming that they had lived there for a certain amount of time. So in order to claim that land, you had to submit a number of of documents. You had to submit depositions from uh, witnesses who could vouch for your existence in a territory of Florida um, prior to the U.S. acquiring it. And this was one of those claims. It was a claim by a gentleman named Joseph Maria Caldez, who was actually a Cuban fisherman who had settled on an island outside of the, the Manatee River within Tampa Bay. But he described, this is what's so important, he described the area, and I'll, I'll uh, read here a quote from the claim, quote, from what we can gather from the papers, this land lies at a place called Angola on Oyster River near the Gulf of Mexico, unquote. Now, this is only one sentence, but it's incredibly important because it essentially puts in print the name Angola. You know, a lot of the escaped slaves who were living there did not keep written records, and if they did, they were they were probably destroyed. So we don't have, you know, day-to-day diaries or accounts of, of what was happening there. What we have are the government documents, you know, they are processed through land claims and through correspondence records between the Secretary of War, Andrew Jackson, and the folks who were actually involved in removing these people from the territory, which is what happened in Angola in 1821. What's kind of interesting about this particular story is that some anthropologists now are connecting the descendants of some of the folks that lived in Angola who, when in 1821 the settlement was uh, was essentially destroyed and many people were, were taken back into captivity and sold into slavery, uh, the few who were able to escape actually made their way all the way around the peninsula of Florida to uh, uh, Andros Island, to a place called Red Bays in, in the Bahamas. And the descendants of, of a lot of those people are, are still living there today. They can trace their heritage back to this maroon colony in Florida. So it's kind of an interesting twist that we can connect these these two worlds essentially over the course of, you know, over almost two centuries. Right. And, and today there's a team of people looking for any tangible remains of Angola, right? That's right. Back in 2004, there was a, an interdisciplinary group of, of scholars, archaeologists, historians, and just people from the local community in the Bradenton, Manatee County area who uh, were interested in this story. There were a couple of historians who kind of brought this to light, again, through the very scant historical records or trying to piece together what this community was like, where they came from, who lived there. So they got together in 2004, and they formed what's called the Looking for Angola Project, and it's still in existence today. And, and they're trying to gather together 
together, again, through this interdisciplinary kind of, of way of doing things, trying to gather an archaeological record, you know, digging on, on sites in Manatee County, but also in the Bahamas, trying to compare these tangible remains from both settlements, but also looking through historical records like what we have here at the Library of Florida History, reading between the lines, seeing what we can find to kind of rewrite that narrative, because that's uh, that's an issue with, with Florida history. There are a lot of these communities that are underrepresented in the historiography. So even though we may not have a, a clearly documented history, it doesn't mean that uh, these communities didn't exist. And we just have to work a little bit harder and dig a little bit deeper. That's what this project is trying to do. Uh, in fact, just recently at the Manatee Mineral Springs Park, they've erected a historical marker on the site near a freshwater spring where the, the Angola residents probably got their fresh water from, near where, the, where they believe the site exists today. Now, of course, Manatee County, as is the case in much of Florida, has uh, developed dramatically, especially over the course of the 20th century. So a lot of these areas are, are covered up by parking lots and homes and things like that. So some of the tangible remains we may not find ever, but we may find, you know, decades later as technology progresses. But this kind of project is, uh, is really an important step in not only historical research, but how we understand Florida history and the diversity and the complexity of Florida's history. Great. Fascinating story, Ben. Thanks. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. Holly Baker is a public historian at the University of Central Florida. She has this report on the Seminole and Miccosukee Constitutions. At the 2018 Florida Conference of Historians, a day-long session examined each of the Florida Constitutions and discussed how they addressed the concerns of their time. The session took place in the Old Senate Chamber in the Florida Historic Capitol Museum in Tallahassee. During the conference, Dr. Andrew Frank talked about the Seminole and Miccosukee Constitutions. The Seminoles and Miccosukees have been residents um, and a political units or separate units in Florida for a very long time, more than 100 years. And in the early 1950s, there was a conservative pushback against basically the Indians' New Deal, and there was a pushback against um, self-determination for Native peoples. And under the Eisenhower administration, there was a policy called termination. Um, this was in 1954 where the Seminoles were told that their rights to common land, what was reservation land, which was established in the early 20th century, and their right to be considered a community was going to be terminated. This was a status that was reserved for, or targeted to native peoples across the country who were English-speaking, private property owning, had democratic governments, um, who had all the markings for what in the 1950s would have been perfect assimilation. And for some reason, the Seminoles, and they're all, if there were Indians in Florida, they were deemed Seminoles, they were put on this list, despite the fact that the characteristics that were typically used to get on the list did not apply to them. And they protested. They went, a handful went to Washington, D.C., uh, but they held hearings on the Dania Reservation, which is now Hollywood, and also at Big Cypress and Brighton, fundamentally saying, we can't be terminated, right? This is, this is ridiculous. So in 1954, they begin work on creating a constitution which carries with it a 
sense that this is the start of government. So the Seminoles put together a constitution, they put it up for ratification in 1957, um, and it passes 241 to 5. The Miccosukee tribe of Florida was a part of the Seminole Nation until the issue of termination highlighted the cultural and political differences between them. The Miccosukees began organizing as an independent tribe with a goal to create their own constitution. In the Miccosukee Reservation, which is down on Tamiami Trail, hardly anyone voted. They opted out. They thought the whole thing was a sham. And instead, what they insisted on was an ancient form of governance that was local, where clan leaders and medicine men became political leaders, and they thought that this was the only legitimate form of government. And even if it meant termination, they wanted to be left alone. And that was, in essence, what led to the Seminoles passing this charter, it gets ratified by the United States, and now we have a, a Seminole National Council. So that's in 57. Immediately after that, the Miccosukees down in Tamiami Trail, they are horrified by this, because now there is a council speaking on their behalf and authorized to do so, that they really reject both culturally as well as politically, and so they start forming their own government. And in all sorts of ways, they're able to kind of carve out a separate political entity in 1963. And they create a constitution that looks remarkably similar to the Seminole one, but they call themselves the Miccosukee Nation. The Seminole and the Miccosukee constitutions contained Western-style governing structures designed to meet the needs of their people and maintain their separate identities and cultural traditions. Both constitutions were written under the auspices of the United States. And so it worked very much with the unicameral legislation where every reservation was to have representation on the council, and there were three for the Seminoles case. So Big Cypress had one represented, Brighton had another, um, and Dana later Hollywood got a third. And then they had at-large bids. And so this was one person, one vote. If you're over 21, you get one vote. And it was highly democratic which cut against all sorts of traditions of how power was traditionally used in seminal society. So it reflected very much this idea of um, anti-communism of the 1950s. It re represented this idea of one must have a solitary voice, that consensus is the key to good governance. And so in very many ways, these charters reflected the outside. But on the inside, they did a pretty remarkable job of finding a way to articulate how the tribe has the right to deal with the state government and the federal government. So for the first time in U.S. history, the Seminoles were deemed a legitimate form of government, which for U.S. Constitution and state constitution, it gave them an equal footing. It gave them a state-to-state -state relationship, not just with the federal government, but also with the state of Florida, which ultimately gives them a tremendous amount of leverage over the next 50-some-odd years. Federal recognition provided the two Florida tribes with a stronger platform to assert land rights, gain economic power, and manage their environmental resources. Andrew Frank. Now with independent resources, they get to choose where the roads get built. They get to choose how they're going to spend the money that they earn. And so over the course of time, like all governments, they have to decide, one, how powerful will this council be, but also what are the responsibilities of a government to its people? Is the responsibility to give a check to every family? Is the responsibility to provide education, health care, and senior services? And that has been the, uh, the debate amongst themselves since 57. But with more responsibilities or more financial well-being, they have more choices. For Florida Frontiers, I am Holly Baker, radio and podcast producer with the Public History Program at the University of Central Florida. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, 
please join us right here again next week. Until then, find us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase, Robert Casanello, and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.